This episode of the Pillar Podcast is brought to you by Seton Home Study School. They incorporate the Catholic faith into everything they do, everything they teach, and every resource they have. To find out if Seton Home Study is right for you, your child, or your family, visit setonhome.org. That's setonhome.org. Hey everybody, welcome to the Pillar Podcast, the podcast that brings you great Catholic conversation. I usually say each week, but it's been a while. Happy Easter, everybody. We um, we are so glad to be back with you in the Easter season, Ed. It is the tide of Easter, is it not? Easter tide. Christ is risen, JD. Christ is risen. You know, I was just thinking this morning, like, um, there has never been and will never be again in human history cooler news to report that somebody got to report, indeed, somebody's recorded in the gospel even got to report than that Christ was was and is risen. That's just the coolest Catholic reporting that ever has been, is it not? It's ironic that it was also termed fake news at the time. <laughs> yes, it was. Yes, that's right. How was your how was your Easter with the with the fam? What is what does the Flynn family Easter triduum look like when you do it? Are you guys what do you are do? You vigil people? I'm I'm asking you about your Easter. I'm curious. You never ask me about me. I know, but you know I, I'm trying. I'm trying to change, JD. It's, it, look, I'm living in the glory of the risen Lord. I am trying to be more gregarious. My spiritual director may have told me I needed to make more of an effort with people. I'm do, I'm doing my best. Did you talk um, about me in spiritual direction? No, not you specifically. I, my spiritual director knows me very well, and he, you know, he has suggested that I can be a bit offhand with people, and that I I should, you know. I, I should is part of seeing Christ in the other. I should I should take a, a more fraternal interest in their lives. <laughs> Help me out, JD. I'm trying to be a better man here. All right, you are, and I'm proud of it. And uh, and how and, how was your Easter? Where did you What did you do? Were you morning people or were you vigil people? Well, I love going to Easter vigil. See, now I feel like you're. This is. Now I feel like you're just asking because your spiritual director told you to ask. I mean, this just. No, I'm genuinely curious. I love going to Easter Vigil, but we had uh, we did a lot. We did a relatively um, we did a lot of liturgy during uh, Holy Week, and um, by the time it came to it, it just didn't seem like it was going to happen for our kids. And so we went to the seven thirty a.m. Mass on Easter Sunday, which Ooh. is earlier than we usually go to. Yeah, because we didn't, um, you know. So we want we just wanted to have a mass that was going to make it that was going to be doable for the kids and for the family and the 730 was that and actually it was great um i love the easter vigil and i love going to the easter vigil this wasn't the year for it and you know you have to just call that it's a game time call unless i suppose you're a catechumen or something um but it was for us a game time call and it wasn't the right year for it and the 730 was i think all right surprising like the 930 or the 1130 you know they were going to be <laughs> zoo yeah, exactly. And I was really, I mean, there were a lot, there were more people at the 730 than are typically at any mass at our parish. And uh, I felt that I had a certain grace of a kind of consolation. And I felt just so buoyed up and encouraged by the sheer number of people who had come to worship on Easter Sunday, um, regardless of their ordinary religious practice. I just felt reminded in a way that was very, uh, that very much seemed to me to be a kind of consolation. Or an encourage a kind of uh, a kind of graced encouragement. What what a good thing it is that uh, the church was very very full even for the seven thirty. And by the time we left the seven thirty at say eight forty five or eight fifty five, um, there were people. You know, the parking lot was both emptying and filling up because people were already 
packing in for the 9.30. So it was just, uh, so that was good. And um, my son Daniel was a champ. So Kate and I kind of split up various Holy Week liturgies, um, you know, and da but Davey, we sort of uh, um, recruited into everything. So he had, he had more liturgical uh, um, time in the pew than anyone else in the family for the whole of Holy Week. And he, he was a trooper. So we went home. Oh, we unburied. You know, this custom, I didn't know about this custom until this year. Are you familiar with the custom of burying an Alleluia um, at the beginning of Lent? How do you... What? Right. So my son, Davey, came home from school a couple days before Ash Wednesday with a sealed envelope that said, do not open until Easter. Mm -hmm. And he said we needed to bury it. And uh, we didn't want to bury it outside, so we buried it in a cabinet in the basement. But that counted. Um, but we took this and we stored it in a, in a cabinet in the basement. Uh, and then on Easter morning before we went to mass, he said, dad, let's go, let's go, let's go. So we went down, we got the envelope at mass. Um, uh, shortly before mass began, we unsealed the envelope and there were all these big sort of printouts of the word Alleluia that he had colored and stuff like that, that we were then able to sort of wave around for the whole of mass. So apparently this is a, I'm told that this is something of a Christian custom for Lent and um, and Easter, but I had never experienced that before. I've I've never heard of it, but it sounds charming. Did so you were at the seventh so you didn't have any baptisms? No, sir. Tell me about so you you are vigil. You vigil is not a game time call for you. You are a vigil man through and through. I'm I I am I am a I'm a vigil kind of guy in all things. I. But your child I is JD. Still very young. Yeah, although. Um, she she obviously went to the vigil last year when she was a babe in arms, and she was in fact baptized there. So she had to go. Um, she was kind of the main event in, in that respect. Although this year we we didn't want to take her because she's you know she's eighteen months old more or less, and she's right at that in between age where you know too young to sort of be self sufficient and fall asleep on a chair, but too old to, and more importantly too big to be you know just strapped into a stroller or whatever or restrained. Um, but we found, uh, uh, someone, someone volunteered to basically overnight at our house. Oh, wow. So we got to go to the vigil and she just slept as normal. How do you so advertise that for that? Like I didn't, it was family. It was family. Um, so we were, yeah, we got really lucky there. Uh, so I was pleased about that, but we didn't have any vid. So, but if you didn't have, so you weren't, you weren't a godfather this year. You, you weren't sponsoring anyone. At the Easter Vigil, who was being a catechumen? Yeah, I mean, this is Easter time. Is you know catechumen time? You're not. I, I, you're, you're the, you often talk about your delight in being a godfather. So I, I I'm thought maybe often you... a godfather to children, to infants being baptized, or I've been a confirmation sponsor to young people being confirmed. But I've only been, I think, twice. Um, once have I been a godfather at Easter Vigil to a genuine catechumen, and once have I been a confirmation sponsor to a baptized non-Catholic who was received into the church. Okay, well, so I want to ask you a piece of Godfather advice. Okay, Godfather to Godfather, the boys are starting to to hit the tween years, many of them, and I don't know what to get them because obviously, as a Godfather, and for most of the time, I I wasn't um, a parent, so I would I would vent all of my uh, urges to spoil children on my on my godchildren to their benefit. Um, but for the tween years, I don't know what to get them. So like my oldest godson is 14 now. And, and obviously I got him a watch 
Well, that's what I was going to say. My One of my godsons will graduate from eighth grade this year, what everyone thinks of the notion of graduating from eighth grade. And uh, uh, borrowing a page from your own book, it was my intention to buy him uh, one of a couple of mechanical watches. I like that. I, no, I, I mechanic, my first mechanical watches I had planned for my godsons for their confirmation present. Um, no, for my first watches, usually when they're going into high school or they're old enough to want a watch that's you know respectable. I always get them a, a G-Shock is always their first watch because that way they can run it over with a car. They can, you know, whatever. It's This is still a watch watch and you don't have to be embarrassed about wearing it. This is not a kid's watch, but, you know, they're not going to hurt it. And they can kind of, you know, they can learn about having nice things. Um, and I, the other thing I always get godchildren is, but this usually happens when they're younger, sort of seven or eight. I, I find them a minor league baseball hat that has their initials on it. One, you, you you mocked me for having one of my own the other week, whenever it was. But so I always do that. But the the what to do with them when they're like ten, eleven? So I was thinking, and I've I may or may not have bought a few of these already to give as godchild gifts for the Easter season. But I wanted to take your temperature on on if you think this is appropriate. I've I'm figuring like kids like comic books, but you don't want to give a kid just one comic book because that's kind of you know. It's 30 seconds of entertainment at best. You haven't broadened their horizon in any particular way. So I got um, I got a couple of, I guess, comic book anthologies. But, um, I mean, they're not, they're not what, you know, the hipsters would call graphic novels by any stretch of the imagination. But they are, they're deeper track cuts. So like the original Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. The, you know, the 80s black and white. Eastman and Laird, that kind of thing. Um, stuff like that. Some like Dark Horse Star Wars stuff for one of them who's you know big into that sort of thing. So my question to you is this. You're a father of a son. Two sons, uh, actually. A pretty precocious one. Um, you know, in Davy's case, a very precocious one, though. Yes. Am, am I going to get in trouble with the parents for giving them a comic book? that They're like, oh, a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles comic book. How cute. And then you find out, like, no, the turtles are actually going to, like, stab people and, you know. It's, this is not your Saturday morning cartoon sort of thing. Is that too much for a 10-year-old? That probably depends a great deal on the parents, isn't it? I mean, doesn't it? I mean, you, you would know them better than I. There are some well, parents who would be very comfortable with that and some parents who wouldn't, uh, you know, or perhaps they're the kind of parents who don't know what's in them, in them comic books. Oh, I'm sure they won't know what's in them until their child will tell them what's in them. But, I mean, I kind of feel like the only criteria that I know how to apply here is, well, they asked me to be the godfather, so they surely knew what they were getting. Yeah, I think that's true. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, very honestly, I'm I'm sorry. I, I hate to let you down. I just don't know enough about this topic to really be able to offer you very much at all. Okay, never mind then. You know, you're no good to me. All of this, all of this, me trying to take an interest in the life of J.D. Flynn was so that I could hopefully get the benefit of your wisdom. And I it's eventually been a realized effort. what was going on. I became very, yeah. very clear. Father. To me. I want you to know, if you're listening, this was a wasted effort on my part. It became absolutely very clear to me why you had asked me how my Easter was, that you had a seri- that, that it was a merely utilitarian conversation to get where you wanted to go. And I had, the problem for you is, one, I wasn't going to play that game. I didn't want to be used in that way. And two, <laughs> I have been trying to make an effort. Uh, I suppose we're, all, we're both on an Easter tide path to self-improvement, yours in a very utilitarian way. But um, I have been trying to make... Um, more of an effort uh, not to opine, uh, to refrain from uh, from opining, um, reaching conclusions, making judgments, or pontificating uh, on subjects about which I uh, have no uh, no knowledge. I have decided Ed, that I, in my life, gosh, 
the people <laughs> who don't like us talking about us are not going to like this episode. I've decided Ed, that in my life I'm going to try, maybe this is um, age or wisdom or maybe I'm just tired, I don't know, but I've decided I'm going to just try to just encourage people more in their own convictions about what they ought to do rather than weigh into their judgment. That's a really foolish idea. No, no, no. Assuming that they're within the confines. You shouldn't encourage people in their own. Their People are almost always wrong. Assuming that and... they're within the confines of the teachings of the Catholic Church and such things. Like, you think that comic books is a good idea? Trust your intuition, man. And I think that's great. I just want to be the kind of guy who tells people when they have an idea, I think that's great. Not so much in your copy, but in your ideas <laughs> about comic books which is relatively irrelevant to me, um, I feel like I, I, will, I just want to be the sort of, I want to be an encourager, a son, the sons of encouragement. What is that scripture about the sons of encouragement or something like that? I, I don't know. I wasn't raised a Protestant. <laughs> uh, fair enough. All right, buddy. We have, some, we have some news we need to probably talk about, don't we? Because it's been quite a while. We've had some stuff going on. It's been an interesting couple of weeks in Easter, I guess it's not been, it's been pleasingly not crazy busy, which I have appreciated. I guess if I'm picking the topic genuinely, I, I would like to talk about Bishop Stephen Chow. I thought you might. Bishop Stephen Chow, the Bishop of Hong Kong, is on a visit right now uh, to Beijing, which you have said is a visit to the mainland, although I'd point out that the Diocese of Hong Kong includes both Hong Kong proper and some parts of quote-unquote, mainland China. I understand, but the, politically, Hong Kong is its own thing. It is a special administrative region, although less and less. Um, and also the Diocese of Hong Kong is is like unto an island, JD, for it is not part of the CPCA and is not covered by the Vatican-China deal. Yeah, the Diocese of Hong Kong, although part a special administrative region of the People's Republic of China, I don't think participates in, for example, the various apparatus, both legitimate and illegitimate, of, of Episcopal conferences and assemblies of, uh, of, uh, of China, whether those sponsored by the Chinese Communist yes. Party or those uh, recognized by the Holy See, the Diocese of Hong Kong plays according to its own, own set of rules and has this sort of relationship of singularity to um, the Holy See. I presume... Is uh, is the uh, Diocese of Hong Kong? Ed, does it fall under the Propaganda Fide? Is it does it fall under the excuse me the Dicastery for the Evangelization of Peoples, which used to be called the Congregation for the Evangelization of Peoples, and before that was called the Congregation for the Propagation of the Faith? Is it mission territory, formally speaking, in the life of the church? I, I don't know, which is not to say I haven't tried to find out, but who actually makes what calls for China these days? is almost impossible to get a straight answer out of anyone regarding. So in theory, Propaganda Fide used to handle everything, and I think up to and including Hong Kong. Then I feel like for a while, bishops started like chiming in, but it was still Prop Fide that were mostly dealing with it. And then you got the Vatican-China deal, and then the Secretary of State came in with its size nines all over everything. And... All I can tell you is that Chow's own appointment, which took a long time, was not covered by the Vatican-China deal. And I know this because an official at the Secretary of State that I asked about it while it was back and forth, and we'd reported on a candidate that they were about to announce, and um, they got very angry at us and said, we wish you hadn't done that. And they ended up spiking the candidate, killed Dimash. Um Precisely because we had reported it. No, no, no. But I'm saying those things happened in that order, and... Um, there was some local outcry at the possibility of his appointment. And in fact, we were denounced by name in the in the diocesan newspaper 
but so anyway, um, that the past is all prologue there to to saying that the official I was chatting to about all of this, and I said, well, you know, what is, you know, does the, you know, why has Beijing weighed in on this in a in a substantive way? And I said, well, no, it's it's a completely different thing. Not, Hong Kong isn't under the Vatican China deal, so I know it's not under the Vatican China deal, even though they haven't published the terms of the deal. Um, so it's its own thing, and it's not um, under the CPCA, the the sort of Communist Party subsidiary organization, which the Vatican does not recognize, um, but nevertheless, you know, is is the is the primary means of administration of the church on the mainland, um, with its own illegitimate bishops' conference, which is under Chinese law responsible for making episcopal appointments on the mainland without reference to the Vatican, which when that law came out, everyone rushed to assure us that, you know, that's just a function of Chinese law. They can't recognize a foreign power and domestic law. Of course, the Vatican has the first and final say in all this. And actually, it turns out that, no, <laughs> the law means exactly what it says, which is this um, CPCA subsidiary committee, the uh, Bishop's Conference of the Catholic Church in China, the BCCCCCCCCCC, um, does in fact just make all the Episcopal appointments. And sometimes they let Rome know and sometimes they don't as the mood takes them. Um, so yeah, Bishop Chow is in Beijing right now. I think he goes home today or tomorrow. Uh, he's on a five-day tour of the Archdiocese of Beijing. He's meeting with Bishop Li, who is um, not just the Archbishop or the, the Bishop Archbishop rather than the Bishop rather than the Archbishop Bishop. He's the Bishop Archbishop of um, of Beijing, but he's also the head of the CPCA. So the 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 symbolism of the Bishop of Hong Kong going to Beijing, the political capital of the People's Republic of China, to meet with the Bishop President of the Chinese Patriotic Catholic Association has been widely remarked on, even in secular, it's all secular, uh, Chinese mainland news, which normally Catholic affairs don't get a look in. So that's all been very interesting. And, um, you know, Bishop Chow has put out a statement pledging um, better cooperation and, you know, working together with uh, Bishop Lee in Beijing and all of these things. And, you know, everyone's kind of wondering, you know, what's what's going on here? What's 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 going on behind the curtain, as it were? What do you think? I don't know. I mean, when you think, I mean, look, the situation, the situation in China so broadly is problematic right now. You know, the situation in Shanghai, as you as you say, with the appointment of a bishop who uh, to, to be bishop of Shanghai, which is a big city, obviously, uh, without the approval of the Holy See, has discouraged and demoralized a lot of priests there. I, I think Bishop Chow, it seems to me, has thus far tried to avoid having to take a decided position on the Vatican-China deal. Which I mean, it's not it's not specifically his remit to have to do so, but it seems to me that he has sort of tried to studiously avoid this. The, the tension over this in precisely the way that his predecessor's predecessor, Cardinal Zen, you know, has, if Cardinal Zen has tried to run into the fire, Bishop Chow has tried to say, I think as much as he can, um, look, I'm going to be the bishop of my diocese, for better or for worse, and there are certainly questions about various elements of leadership in the Diocese of Hong Kong that are not immediately germane to this conversation, but I wonder how long that can perdure. I, I wonder too. I mean, no one seems to. No one that I've talked to in Hong Kong. By the way, did you see what I did? Yeah, the, you tried not to express an opinion. No, it's not that I tried not to express an opinion. I tried to qualify my opinion in the fact that I do that I don't know because I'm trying to uh, approach complex subjects with more humility these days. 
That Jeez, might not make dude. for good podcasting, though. Very. Honest. I just say I don't know that that's what people are tuning in for. But okay. Um, <laughs> in that case, Bishop Chow should no. I'm... So I I think um, I mean again talking to people in Hong Kong, no one there seems to expect that the CPCA is trying to annex the diocese of Hong Kong. The sense I get is that they are preferring to use a phrase, cultural revolution, um, to steadily have a hand on formation and ordination, and particularly the presence of religious priests in the diocese, because quite a sizable proportion of Hong Kong's presbyterate are, in fact, religious priests who are um, ministering in the diocese, but not, you know, properly speaking priests of. Um, and sort of, you know, hog Hong Kong closer that way. So I think at the same time, Bishop Chow, you're right, he's no Cardinal Zen in terms of how he speaks about the the genocidal barbarity of the Chinese government, or even um, in the way in which he goes after the the civil government in Hong Kong, which has, of course, been trying to unwind all of the civil liberties and rule of law guarantees that Hong Kong has traditionally enjoyed. Um, but at the same time, Bishop Chow is no squish. You know, his, uh, he's one of those guys who, in another circumstance, if Bishop Chow were the Bishop of Sheboygan, I, I suspect that he and I would have some some serious conversations to have about ecclesiology and doctrine and things like that. He's said, for example, that he's, you know, in favor of the idea of women's ordination one day and that sort of thing. I mean, that was my point, is that Bishop Chow has, to my way of thinking, you, you sort of say he's no squish. To my way of thinking, Bishop Chow has raised a lot of points that seem to me to contravene Catholic doctrine, and I'm not saying he has an obligation to speak into this situation of the China deal or anything like that, but you'd be hard-pressed to paint him as a sort of um, advocate for the religious li liberty of the church, at least insofar as I can. I, I, no, that's where I would disagree with you. I, I don't know that I would agree with um, Bishop Chow on a lot with regard to sort of internal church affairs, but in a sort of ad extra conversation, he's no squish. He's, uh, you say he's not one to, you know, go into bat for the church's sort of religious freedom, and that's not true. He's he's publicly gone on the record as saying a formative experience for him as a young man was Tiananmen Square. That he has, when he was unveiled as the new bishop of Hong Kong, he said publicly into a microphone in Hong Kong, yeah, I was at effectively illegal gatherings in Hong Kong because they moved to ban. Um, Hong Kong used to be the only place in China, in Chinese territory, where you could mark the Tiananmen Square massacre every year. And there was always a big... I understand that he signaled those things, but he has he, he really... I guess my point is he really has not weighed in on, unless you tell me that I'm wrong, issues pertaining to the national security law in Hong Kong or other contemporary challenges facing the church. And maybe he can't. I mean, again, this is the point is maybe he's, he can't. He's not picked a fight directly over the national security law, but his, his public statements I would describe as guarded, but clear. Um, he has spoken out about religious freedom in terms. He has spoken out about civil liberties and human dignity in terms. He has, I, I think, I mean, I have reported a lot back in the day on the way in which the civil government in Hong Kong has been slowly cracking down on Catholic schools in Hong Kong, which have been, you know, are a hugely important part of the social fabric there, and about ways in which they're starting to impose ideology and sort of national loyalty tests and criteria on teachers and classroom materials and things. This is all under Chow's predecessor, Cardinal John Tong Hong, which is still fun to say. Um, 
and Chow has not sort of said up with this, we will not put, but he can't because the the way that it works in Hong Kong is the church doesn't actually own the school premises. It's all public land. The schools, you know, the church is basically the the leaseholder of its own premises, both on its churches and on its schools. So there's only so far you can go. And at the same time, he said, look, I'm a product of Catholic schools and culture is, I'm trying to remember the exact word he, he used. Um, but basically he said, you know, culture can be revolutionary that the more important thing for us to do is not to antagonize and to be able to continue our work, our important work in the schools and in the pews. And, you know, he's not been a, a Cardinal John Ton Hong, which is fun to say, um, who, you know, sort of came out with circulating letters to his priests saying, don't talk about politics in your homilies. Don't mention the riots. Don't, you know, they're watching you. I'm watching you say nothing. You know, Chow has not done that. He's not, again, he's not a squish, but he's, nor is he a Cardinal Zen. And I think he's, I mean, he's a Jesuit. He's, you know, he's a little savvy about this. Like lots of people regard Cardinal Zen as a hero and in terms of being outspoken, I'm not sure that that has been how effective that has been, right? Right. And well, and again, Cardinal Zen is playing in a, a different role. Cardinal Zen didn't have to deal with this sort of thing when he was the Cardinal Archbishop of Hong Kong, when, you know, he's, he was operating in a different time um, when the, the SAR, you know, sort of freedoms and the basic law of Hong Kong were being respected in a much different way, that it was much closer to the time immediately following the handover from the UK. Um, there was no such thing as the Vatican-China deal. All that sort of stuff. So Cardinal Zen is is doing all the things he's doing, but with the relative freedom of an auxiliary and a cardinal. And Bishop Chow is neither of those. Oh, sorry, not an auxiliary, an emeritus. And uh, so, so contextualize this in the broad situation of the China deal, which I mean, look, even the Holy See now for the first time is recognizing how broken it is. Uh, yeah, there's no deal. So where do you where do you think they go with that? Because they on the on the one hand have begun to recognize there's no deal. Beijing is not taking it seriously. We had optimism or hope, probably optimism, that Beijing would... Um, Wide-eyed naivete, some might call it. Some might call it that. But where does the Holy See go with all of this now? There's not much they can do sort of in the moment because what is emerging in China is is exactly what the China deal was supposed to stop from happening, which is a parallel Catholic church and hierarchy not in communion with Rome. And, you know, it's one thing to say, oh, well, you know, these CPCA bishops, you know, they're in their heart of hearts, they're communists. You know, they've all they've joined the CPCA. They've asserted their the supremacy of Communist Party authority and doctrine over the church They're You know, they've taken the oath there. You can't trust any of them. And I don't think that's fair. A lot of them are, from what I can tell, talking to people close to them on the mainland, they're, they're clergy, they're local guys. You know, these are guys of faith and they're they're trying to play the hand they've been dealt and you know do good work for the church and spread the faith and do it in a way that doesn't get everyone thrown in jail and doesn't get their church bulldozed and and things like that and i'm not on the you know i don't have to live that reality so i'm not gonna you know i'm not gonna sit here and say everybody in the cpca is a shill and a plant and you know all that i don't think that's true um but we're moving past china's announcing and installing bishops and the Vatican's kind of waving its hand over it a few days later and saying, yeah, fine. Okay. I mean, we've now got to the point where the, the, the I mean, this is, this is, this sounds like a ridiculous oversimplification, but it's not, this is just a, a perfectly linear account of what they've done is the Chinese state, the communist party has 
acted to, in its mind, suppress five Catholic dioceses and create a sort of super diocese and install its own bishop at the head of that and get legitimately appointed Vatican-approved bishops to vacate their sees and take up positions as auxiliary bishops in this new diocese that the Holy See doesn't recognize as even existing. And I mean, the the problem with that is you can't just sort of look away and say, well, we'll we'll agree to it after the fact. Like, you know, you, it's one thing to say China, you know, announced a, a new bishop that the Vatican can live with, and it would have been nice if they'd consulted more or whatever. But you you can't have China erecting and suppressing dioceses. Like that's that that's not that's not possible. That you can't live with that. Not ecclesiologically valid to borrow from another context. Indeed. Um, but again, as and in fact, it's funny you say borrow from another context. I think I wrote a thing once that said the Germans are watching China and realizing quite how much they can get away with. But uh, I, I don't know what the Vatican does right now because, the, the, you know, I've said this before, they're kind of caught at the table where, you know, if they get up and walk away and say this is all bad faith, what are they, what are they going to do? Put China under interdict? Um, rip up the Vatican-China deal, which none of us know what it says anyway? Um, and basically invite the CCP to treat anyone who doesn't break with Rome and adhere totally to the CPCA and the CCP as traitors to the state and agents of a foreign power and, you know, treat them accordingly. I, I, I don't know. I, I, I don't see how at this point the, the Vatican could possibly renew the deal for another two years without, um, to use a phrase, total loss of face. I mean, it would be if they were to renew it for another two years, which they're due to do not this October, but October 2024. Um, if they renewed it for another two years, I mean, at that point, it would be a hostage situation that the Holy See is diplomatically captive to the Chinese government. And I don't know, we'll, we'll get we'll get to that in a year, I guess. But, um, but we can see a lot of appointments between now and then we could see yeah, the making of more dioceses between now and then as well. Yeah, well, and I mean, to I, I and I, I said and I wrote this I think last week that I think this is the the potential hidden benefit of a Bishop Chow nipping across the mainland and meeting with Lee is you know yeah you've got to grin and mug it up for the cameras and all, all of this stuff, but one thing that the church the Holy See Secretary of State does not have, and they've admitted this in public by basically saying we first heard of the most recent illicit Episcopal appointment by reading about it in the press, is they have no firsthand knowledge of what's going on in China. They don't have any sources on the ground. They don't have any direct contact. I, I'm not trying to make this about it, but it seems to me very clear that we're better sourced there than they are, and that's... Terrifying. Yeah. And and again, phone works both ways, guys. If you, if you want to chat, I'm all for helping the church where I can. So anyone in the Secretary of State second section who wants to... To, to get a bit of quiet advice, I'm happy to help. Um, but here, here's the thing. Um, there are some offices of the sec- second section of the Secretary of State that are extremely well-informed on ex- any number of issues. I don't want to sort of throw the whole thing under the bus. No, 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 no. I'm, say- I'm saying in China. I think the Holy See has been clear that they are absolutely not sourced. They've said it. They said, we learned about this in the press. I don't want to throw the entire second section under the bus. No, no, no. The second section, by and large, are good diplomats. On, on, on some issues, the Secretary is probably the most well-sourced institution in the world. 
Oh, if it wants to activate it, the second section of the Secretary of State has probably the best human intelligence network. That's absolutely right, Ed. That is absolutely right. And the reason we're so well-sourced in places like China is we basically tap into it. And I think part of the reason why the Holy See doesn't have good sources in China is because the network, the presbyteral network that they should be tapping into doesn't trust them. Yeah. You know, I mean, the effect of, one of the effects of the China deal is to really sever the kind of trust that ought to exist between the Holy See and the presbyter of the country. That's exactly right. So, I mean, that's what guys were telling us is we don't know, we don't feel like, Shanghai guys were telling us we don't feel like the Holy See's on our side. And that obviously, that's the reason why they don't know what's going on. Which is, which is funny because these guys are saying it in the same breath. I don't trust the Holy See. I wouldn't talk to them. On the other hand, I am a hundred percent in communion with Rome, in communion with the Pope. I will not bow to the communist party. And so it's this weird dichotomy where, you know, the... The clergy of mainland dioceses in China feel like they're being sold down the Pearl River by the people to whom they are pledging their loyalty to as they go down the river. I mean, it's it's very weird. It's very awkward that way. Um, but anyway, getting back to the original point, I think one of the real potential benefits, and I mean, who knows if this is happening or not, of having Bishop Chow go there is he can he can talk to Lee and, you know, hopefully have some place somewhere where it's not a bugged room where he can have a free and frank conversation with him and say, you know, what, do you, what would you like me to tell Rome? You know, blink twice if you need help, you know, that sort of thing. And, and get a sense for, you know, is this, you know, is Lee trying to play Chow and get him to sort of say, you know, well, you know, come on in, the water's fine. It's We're, we're all Chinese first before we're Catholic bishops. Or is the is the conversation heading the other way, which is you tell Rome, which, you know, has happened in the old days. Um, you know, you would get CPCA bishops who were um, on the surface and legally schismatic and excommunicated and considered by Rome not to be valid bishops who would tell underground priests and, you know, sort of in pectoral bishops, that sort of thing, and say, tell Rome I'm with them. Tell, you know, tell them I am, you know, I, I, I love the Pope. I am with them. You know, so at least Chow and Lee were in a room where they could have that conversation. And I think that's worth the trip on its own. It's, it's an aspect of the trip that the Chinese media are absolutely not going to play up, but I think that's, um, that's a real potential benefit. That's right. All right, Ed, we will be right back after this word from our sponsor. Ed, the sponsor of this week's pillar podcast is Seton home study school. They incorporate the Catholic faith into everything they do. They offer single course enrollments for those who want to only take a course, not their entire program. They're an accredited school whose student count is over 15,000 that aims to help families do all the things that they need to homeschool their children. That's right. They offer single course enrollments for those who only want to take one course and not the entire program, dip their toe in the water. Even students enrolled in public schools can benefit from enrolling in their religion courses. Uh, Adults who just want to learn more about their faith can take a high school level theology course in something like Understanding the Scriptures or the Early Church Fathers. Seton Tuition is a fraction of most other Catholic schools, an accredited school that offers families all the things they need uh, to homeschool, like detailed daily lesson plans and academic counselors standing by. Um, They make Catholic education available in every corner of the country, even in rural areas where parishes can't support their own Catholic schools. Seton is a nonprofit which does everything possible to keep costs down and keep tuition low and affordable so as many families as possible can get an authentic Catholic education. Ed, where can families learn more about Seton Home Study School? Well, they can go to setonhome.org and they can watch their free beginner's guide to Seton. They can find an eight-minute video on the homepage that will just tell you everything you need to know about getting started getting to understand Seton Home Study, what they're all about, and if they're right for your family. That's right. If you're wondering if Seton is right for you, check it out at setonhome.org.
And we're back. Okay, from uh, foreign affairs to domestic affairs, Ed, and from the Vatican-China deal to the Eucharistic revival, and specifically to some news that we reported last week uh, about um, about the Eucharistic pilgrimages. The, the, there is so the Eucharistic revival project is um, is a kind of initiative of the USCCB that's aimed at engendering deeper Eucharistic uh, fervor and devotion and faith among Catholics, inviting Catholics to um, have a deeper appreciation for the Blessed Sacrament, and obviously embedded in that is to have a deeper appreciation for the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass, the context, the Eucharistic context, the, the, the Eucharistic sacrifice, the, the Eucharist itself, which is the, sacrifice, the, 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 the sacrificial um, meal of, uh, and offering of the Eucharist. So, uh, so the Eucharistic Revival is this project of the USCCB, and um, connected to that project is a 2024 um, Eucharistic Congress in Indianapolis, which is meant to be a national gathering of Catholics for days of catechesis and common worship and adoration and, uh, and fellowship and these kinds of things. And preceding that, which we've reported about before, um, is, uh, is a plan for four pilgrimages uh, to travel from the four corners of the country, so to speak, from four sort of symbolic locations in the country, from the Shrine of Father Michael McGivney in Connecticut, from somewhere in California, but I can't remember where off the top of my head. Do you remember? I would imagine somewhere to do with Junipero Serra? Uh, maybe so, maybe so. Uh, from the border of the United States and Mexico in the Diocese of Brownsville, Texas, and from the headwaters of the Mississippi River in the Diocese of Crookston, Minnesota, northwestern Minnesota. So there'll be these four pilgrimages, and basically it'll be a team of people who have sort of applied to be a part of this and been accepted, lay, lay people and clerics, and maybe religious, I don't know, uh, who walk the miles between um, the places where they initiate in Indianapolis and the blessed and proceed with the Blessed Sacrament. So there are processions, major processions when they're walking through cities in coordination with local dioceses, and then what they're calling minor processions, which is the processing of the Blessed Sacrament, sometimes with a canopy, sometimes in a kind of specially purposed with this kind of specially purposed electric vehicle in which the blessed sacrament can be uh, exposed in a in a monstrance and then people can walk behind it i'm um, sorry can we call it a monstrance mobile please or the eucharist oh i oh that, <laughs> wow okay so these things are all in the planning stage and there's a nonprofit that is um that was founded to, that was started uh, on which a couple of bishops are on the board in, in addition to some lay people um who are kind of um planning the uh, the National Eucharistic Congress and doing the fundraising for it and those kinds of things. So it's sort of of the bishops, but not in the bishops. It's not an apostolate, formally speaking, of the bishops' conference, which I think was done uh, to give the thing much more flexibility because it means that decisions can be made outside of um, the sort of structure of the USCCB and these kinds of things. I do not know, this is totally an aside, we can come back to it, but I don't know the juridic identity of the Eucharistic Congress. That's what I was going to ask you is, this is a lot of money they're collecting. Are these bona ecclesiastics? Yeah, I asked you that last week and we kind of battered around a little bit. I don't know. I haven't... So there's a civil um, non-profit of which a couple of bishops are board members and a couple of lay people are board members. The majority of the board members are bishops. We have, we've talked about the way in which um, Catholic universities have a kind of there are questions about their juridic identity because they're not governed when they're governed, not by the uh, ordinary governance structure of the religious institute, but when they're governed instead by self-perpetuating boards. And the National Eucharistic Congress is organized by a self-perpetuating board. Now, something like the World Meeting of Families had had the same thing. So in 2015, 
when the world meaning of families, this was not what we meant to talk about, by the way, but it's super interesting to me. Um, and Ed, uh, when the world meaning of families was organized in 2015, you know, it was organized under the auspices of the Archdiocese of Philadelphia, hosted by the, uh, by the Archdiocese of Philadelphia. That was the sort of locus of it. And so it was, the world meaning of families was an apostolate. I think you might say a joint apostolate of, at that time, the Pontifical Council for the Laity and the Archdiocese of Philadelphia. And so even though there was this civil corporation established to manage the funds, I think you'd be very comfortable sort of saying that those that that the that the project shared in the juridic identity of the archdiocese. Now, if that's true, that means that the temporal goods, the money which it acquired, are would be what we call bona ecclesiastica, goods of the church. That the money it took in and the money it took out would be goods of the church. You could properly say that the thing, the national or the world meeting families, was acting in nomine ecclesiae, and that it's things were the things of the church. Now, while that gives it a certain kind of status, it is a church thing when the world media family speaks, the church speaks, that also means that the money is subject to certain kinds of oversight by the diocesan finance council and the diocesan college of consultors and these kinds of things. And I I don't know, I don't know if the world meeting of families, which I'm using as a parallel place here, subjected itself to those things. I don't know if the organizers of the world meaning of families regarded their assets as effectively designated apostolic assets of the Archdiocese of Philadelphia. My guess, in fact, is that part of the reason why they had a civil corporation was to segregate the assets of the world meaning of families from the assets of the Archdiocese of Philadelphia, you know, out of a desire, if nothing else, to sort of keep it off the Archdiocesan balance sheet lest there be a sort of bankruptcy event or any other event in which the assets of the archdiocese would be looked at. But that does, to me, honestly, in that case, raise some canonical questions. What was that stuff in relationship to the church, and what was this inst- What was this event in relationship to the church? If it was really an apostolic event of the archdiocese and the pontifical council, then shouldn't its stuff have been regulated by canon law? Can I propose an answer? Yeah. First of all, no. But but they were but not considered. Say, the world of meaning of families is a little bit different from the National Eucharistic Congress in a couple of ways. But let's just start with this and then get to that. Okay. Um, no, they would not have been considered bone ecclesiastic. I do not believe. And Why? certainly, I'll tell you. I, I can I can come at this from logical deduction. And certainly, the Pontifical Council would not have considered them bona ecclesiastica or subject to any kind of canonical oversight or ecclesiastical norms because Pope Francis issued a law earlier this year expressly clarifying that such things were bona ecclesiastica and are to be treated that but way. But that doesn't mean that they weren't supposed to be treated that way in the past. No, I think it means they were supposed to be treated that way in the past, but they were definitely not. Oh, right, that they were, they were indeed supposed to be treated as bona ecclesiastica and they were not. Pope Francis issued a law that was effectively a reiteration of Book 5 of the Code of Canon Law to say, hey, if No, you but have it specifically pertained to civil entities, charities, funds, things like that set up by curial departments or dependent spin-offs like pontifical and councils. Clarified, and things like, those things are bona ecclesiastica. But don't you think they were bona ecclesiastica before the Pope's law? I, I think they should have been, and they certainly weren't treated that way. But in answer to your question, were they, technically, legally speaking, 
I think the answer is clear enough in hindsight, which was it was a it was an open question. It could be argued either way. And certainly the people running these things were arguing, oh, no, we can use this money for whatever we and want. And we're not if we want to, to the canonical, pra- you know, to serve yeah. the canonical norms. If of- I want to buy myself a new apartment, well, you know. So that's how they were, how, how the funds of a sort of subsidiary civil corporation were misused in Rome. But there's no indication of that kind of misuse with the world being your families. But the point is. Ah, 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 Nenemu's face. The Mr. Fran Mayer of uh, formerly the, of the Archdiocese of Philadelphia wrote a whole thing about pillar reader Archbishop Vincenzo Pali's involvement in the world meeting of families and the problems they had with money because of him. Oh, that's right. That's right. In which in which Fran Mayer said effectively that Pali was not transparent about the use of money with regard to the world yep. meeting of families, and they couldn't get him to give straight answers to simple questions that he bogged the whole thing down. That's right. I had forgotten about that. Okay, so the point is, we would think that the law before the Pope's motu proprio of this year would have, by itself, ensured that the uh, civil corporations formed to oversee apostolates would not sort of exempt their money from being bona ecclesiastical. We would have thought that they would have been bona ecclesiastical afterward. Anyway, we could, you you want to say, well, it was an open question. I'm not so sure it was an open question. But you want to say, well, it was an open question, and now we have absolute clarity on it. I think we had absolute clarity on it from Book 5 already. I think the reason the Pope had to issue the law is because people just weren't following the obvious meaning of Book 5. I don't know that it... Look, it seems to me is everything obvious that in apostolate I... of a diocese, if a civil corporation is set up to manage the funds, it's still an Okay, but the going back to the Eucharistic Congress, this the is, Eucharistic is this Congress an apostolate? Is the... thing. I told you from the very beginning. We're just right. ta- that's why we're just talking about the world meeting of families. The devil here is in the- Oh, okay. Just to, yeah, no, obviously the world meeting of families should have been treated. I mean, it should have been treated as an apostolate, not just but of the, the archdiocese, Eucharist but of the Congress Holy See. This is different because you really can't say whose apostolate it is, right? I mean, mm-hmm. it's decidedly not, I think, an apostolate of the USCCB. No, because there are some members of the USCCB who clearly think it shouldn't happen. Right, and, and more to the point, like, though the USCCB is supportive of it and though it's meant to sort of fall into or be part of the programming for the USCCB's Eucharistic Revival, there is a distinction there made between the one and the other. So it is decidedly, I think, not an apostolate of the USCCB. I can't think of it being an apostolate of anything. The Eucharistic Congress is sui generis. But is it sui juris? (laughs) Well, I mean, I think it is. Like, absent the Eucharistic Congress becoming a public juridic person, subject to the governance of the Holy See or something like that, I think it is a civil project effectively which means that its goods are not governed by ecclesiastical law of the church its goods are not bona ecclesiastica so you're calling it a private association of the faith no a private association of the faithful is a specific canonical thing whose statutes are approved by the competent ecclesiastical authority you might mean you might think i'm calling it a de facto association of the faithful which well i think it's definitely a de facto one but i'm saying it could be it could be a private association because the goods of a private association are not bona ecclesiastica faithful though because you can't become a private association of the faithful without ecclesiastical recognition of such. You become a private association of the faithful when a competent ecclesiastical authority says you are one. This thing doesn't have statutes. No one has said that it, it doesn't. Is. No, it has bylaws, but no one are has, those not statutes? No, canonical statutes come into existence by the approval of a set of norms as canonical statutes. I'm going to the law here. Yeah, you should. But this is an area of the law uh, that I think is pretty clear. It is also, to be clear, an area of the law of which you have much more practical experience. I don't than think that. that's so. so. I don't think that's so. You know a lot of stuff. No, I don't tend to mess around with um, associations. Okay, so my point I, is, I, as we started the show, I'm not. A, I'm not the social type, JD. I, 
<laughs> I don't like associating. <laughs> I avoid it whenever possible. My point is, I don't think... I mean, we, we started out by wondering, are the goods of the Eucharistic Congress bona ecclesiastica? I think no, because it's definitively not a public juridic person or the apostolate of any identifiable public juridic person. I would agree with that. Therefore, the Eucharistic Congress is an initiative of Catholics, which is operating with at least the presumed consent of the competent of the relevant competent ecclesiastical authorities, and which involves both laity and clerics. But I don't think it has any juridic identity whatsoever. It's a, it's effectively, as far as I can tell, a kind of moral person with some civil identifiers. Which also means that in a certain way, the Eucharistic Congress is an apostolate of Catholics, but not formally speaking an apostolate, at least from the canonical perspective, but not formally speaking an apostolate of the church as such, because only a public juridic person speaks or acts in name of the church as such. Another reason why it probably couldn't get juridic personality is because it's not intended permanent. Yeah, that's true. The law is not, I mean, one problem in canon law is that Corporate law, so corporate law for parishes is, is pretty well developed. Corporate law for religious institutes is pretty well developed. Corporate law for intended permanent things like a seminary or a third order or a pious association is pretty well developed. Corporate law for new kinds of ecclesial movements and sort of events is, is anemic. It's underdeveloped. I suspect it won't be for very long. I suspect eventually the church will legislate on these areas, but... That the Eucharistic Congress is not in a pot. The Eucharist it's in Indianapolis, but it is not the Eucharistic Congress of the Archdiocese of Indiana, Indianapolis, where it's very clearly an apostolate of the Archdiocese of Indianapolis. That it's not that the church's the law chairman? is just not caught up with that kind of reality. Who's the chairman? The chairman is the Bishop of Crooks in Minnesota, but not ex officio. It's obviously not an apostolate of the Diocese of Crooks in Minnesota. Right. I guess what I'm saying is you couldn't you couldn't claim it's the it's an apostle of the Archdiocese of Indianapolis if the if the effective head of it is is the ordinary of another diocese. That the bishop of, of Indianapolis is on the board. I think the Archbishop of Indianapolis is on the board. But again, right. I'm saying if the if the Archbishop of Indianapolis was was on the board and was chairman, and it was happening in Indianapolis, then I think you could start to build a a, a sort of the ex officio, uh, if you're on ex officio, if, if the bylaws of the thing said the Archbishop of Indianapolis is always the chair of the thing. Maybe you can't have always the chair because it's not a permanent body. Yeah, the Archbishop of Indianapolis is to be the chair of the thing. I think you'd but be the right. Person, but if, even I mean, if you said Charles Thompson is the chair of the thing, I don't think that would go sufficient to say this is clearly an apostolate of the Archdiocese of Indianapolis. No, I would I would agree with that. It's it's interesting. It's interesting. I think it's a case where, look, this is clearly a very Catholic thing. And I don't mean I think it's great, although I think it's great. I mean, this is clearly like it's a Eucharistic Congress. It's the most Catholic thing. But there really isn't an, a category of our law to to think about the organizational structure of this, right? So you have the civil corporation, which is not derivative or subsidiary of any juridic body in the church undertaking this massive national apostolic project. And the ecclesiastical accountability for it comes from the fact that the majority of its board are bishops and these kinds of things. But formally speaking, it's not appended to anything. And mm -hmm. again, our law just doesn't catch up to that, which means the church is not in a position, if it wanted to, to regulate its temporal goods or, you know, the Archbishop of Indianapolis could regulate its liturgy because he's the head of liturgy in his diocese. Um, and the Pope could, and the 
congregation for divine worship would probably claim that it, to- it could, and it's always been able to. It has had for <laughs> all time and forevermore for authority time. over the Eucharist. All, Euchar- <laughs> all national Eucharistic processions and congresses in the United States have always been a reserved have matter to the dicastry. For- to the dicastry. This is implicit in the nature of the thing itself. Please, we will not be taking questions. <laughs> I think that'll do. But I don't know, Ed. I mean, do you agree with me that this area of it, this just points? No, to- it's it, it's underdeveloped, and I think part of the reason is, well, I don't want to speculate on why I think it's underdeveloped. But I, 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 I do think uh, I do think you're right that it is anemic and it does need to be more developed. I mean, the problem is when you do something like this, the first move is, and this is, I think, it's not an entirely unique American thing, but I think it's particularly American, is that you reach for the civil lawyers. And usually what happens is the civil lawyers build the thing with an eye to civil liability and civil separation and civil oversight and all that sort of stuff. And then when they finish building the thing, if you're lucky, they bring the canon lawyer in afterwards, who's usually not a, you know, you'll usually have a team of civil lawyers working on this and billing all hours. And then and some kid who works at the, in the end, some, who just got his license five minutes ago, and they're like, hey, could you let us know? Well, or some hardworking chancellor in a diocese who, you know, has got, you know, their desk is six feet under, and you know they get yanked off that, pulled into a room and said, all right, here's what we're going to do. So canon it, figure out how to make this, you know, okay. It's like, well, you really can't do that, um, bishops. I, you know, this is this doesn't make this is neither fish nor fowl, and this doesn't, you know, make it. It's like, well, this is happening. So, you know, put the best spin on it you can. You got twenty minutes, and then sign off on it, and then go back to work. You know, I, yeah. And to be clear, this isn't a criticism of the Eucharistic Congress. I don't think the Eucharistic Congress. No, 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 no. This is a general. I'm making a general comment yeah, about how these things just, tend I to think run it's in America because it points to diocese. a significant lacuna in the law. And you would think that the church would want to, again, I'm not saying the Eucharistic Congress should have voluntarily done anything, but you would think the church would want to be sure that she could, given her interest in regulating the finances of dioceses, you would think she would want to regulate the finances of something like this. And again, I'm not questioning the financial administration of the Eucharistic Congress at all. It just points to me to the way in which these kinds of things, you know, you would think the the church would have an interest in both ensuring their Catholicity, empowering them as Catholic entities, suggesting that they speak and act in nomine ecclesiae, and exercising oversight over their administration. But really, none of those things are, in a certain way, true. The the goodness of the Eucharistic Congress, which I think is good, effectively depends on the goodness of the organizers itself rather than any formal ecclesiastical oversight. And I just find that fascinating. Yeah, I, I mean, the change is coming. It's not going to come, I don't think, for the Eucharistic Congress, because I think it will have happened and hopefully been a roaring success. And but law the, is only uh, retroactive keep, when the Congregation for Divine Worship says it is. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, given given the legislation that Pope Francis has issued this year already, it's clear where this is going and where things like this, how they are expected to be treated in the eyes of the Holy Father. And now the Holy Father's legislation pertains exclusively to, to things like that walk and waddle and swim and fly and quack like ducks, uh, but that are sort of erected in in orbit of the Roman Curia. But nevertheless, it's an example to be. It's an example that's been set, and so you would expect that in future, as things bubble up to the signatura and come back down, and so the tide goes in and out a few times. I think we will see that it's like okay, we've we've now got to imitate what Rome is doing in the same thing, and we need to come up with a new. You know, a, a new sort of starter pack of when we're going to do something like this, in addition to the the normal, like, you know, what are the 10 things we always have to remember we do for civil liability? There's going to be the 10, you know, or 15 or 20 or, or dare we hope, 
hundred canonical points that we have to make sure that we address, uh, you know, from the very beginning. And I just that that's the direction of travel. I am, I am, I, I we complain a lot on this show, JD, about. And that's why a I want to surfer- make clear I'm not complaining about the Eucharistic no, Congress. No, no, no. Anyway, I, 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 no, no, no. This is not about the Eucharistic Congress. But I, I was going to say, as, as a comment on the more general trend, we complain a lot on, on the show about bad law. We complain on the show a lot about absence of law. We complain a lot on the show about the misuse of law and all that sort of thing. But one thing that I am encouraged by is the direction of travel in the church over the last 10 years has been for there to be more law. Indeed. All right, okay. Edward. I've got to go to the airport. I'm going on a little trip. I'll see you next week. Yeah, you will. I mean, I, it's a shame. I, I, I was going to get you to rank your your favorite or least favorite uh, Easter candies for for this. Uh, Reese's peanut butter eggs, the large sort of misshapen Reese's peanut butter cups, followed by Reese's peanut butter eggs, the small things with the hard candy shells that look like Robin's eggs but have peanut butter inside of them, and everything mm. else isn't worth it. Interesting. I. I don't know that I would. Uh, well, I suppose I will. I, 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 in my mind, where you had extra time, I was going to put down a series of qualifiers and say this has to be actual Easter candy that can't just be sort of normal candy repackaged and sort of Easter things, which arguably is what you're describing. But um, and it has to, you know, only be available in the Easter season and that sort of thing. But I mean, I, I can we just say? I mean, maybe you don't agree with me, but I think this is more or less where you were going with that, which is Easter candy by and large is awful. Well, I like the Robin's eggs. Oh, I get... like Robin's eggs a lot. And I like Cadbury eggs. So Cadbury's mini eggs are the one exception Cadbury for me. Cadbury mini eggs I... are very good. I like how they kind of cut your cut the roof of your mouth yeah. a little bit. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I have several pounds of those in my freezer at any given time in the Eastern season. So those are important. I have several uh, pounds but... of those in my belly, actually. I have really enjoyed them. <laughs> Marshmallow peeps are an abomination. Oh, my gosh. And... Yeah. we But we bought, we, in the kids' Easter baskets, we bought these peeps on a stick. It's like six peeps on a stick. And uh, my my son, Max, has taken the peep sticks from everybody's um, Easter baskets and he'll just sort of eat all of the peeps off the stick in one fell swoop. It's really, it's a sight to see. The kid loves them and it is, it is quite a show to see. So that's Max's peep. All right. Where are you on Cadbury's cream eggs? Oh, the worst thing that ever has been. I actually agree with you. They are disgusting. I'm trying not to opine on things I don't need to opine on, but oh no, they make your teeth itch. Like that's those those things are ugh. awful. I I remember even as a kid, like um, when we would go to uh, we my extended family would all migrate to the university for the for bum, the Trudeau. Bum, 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 bum. Stop that. Um, yeah, everyone would always get all excited about Cadbury's cream eggs. And so, you know, as a kid with older cousins, you know, you want to be like, oh, yeah, yeah. If you say that, that's the best. And you'd bite it, just like, ah, this is, don't do this. Yeah. No, Cadbury cream eggs are always a huge mistake. The Pillar Podcast is a production of Pillar Media and NJD Production. I'm your host and Pillar Editor and Chief J.D. Flynn. I'm joined by our podcasting partner and Pillar co-founder, Ed Condon. And just a reminder, everybody, this week's episode of the Pillar Podcast was brought to you by Seton Home Study School. To find out if Seton Home Study School is right for your family, check it out at setonhome.org. That's setonhome.org. We'll be back next week. Please, 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 please send Ed some Cadbury Green Eggs. Don't do that.